Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this episode of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. On this episode, we'll talk Memorial Day, National Burger Day as well, and a couple of Colorado-themed stories to close out the podcast. We begin with Nutella, who is in the news again. But first, a reminder, this podcast brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. If you ever wonder how coffee shops make such delicious tasting coffee where you can't replicate those results at home, well, look no further than Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. Use promo code FOCUS for 10% off your first order. So Nutella, as we mentioned, they are in the news again, but this time not for arguing a proper serving size, which has been the subject the last few times we've talked about Nutella. Nutella, of course, if you're unfamiliar with it, and I can't imagine that you would be if you are listening to this podcast, but they are a popular chocolate hazelnut spread sold globally in over 150 countries and used as sandwich and bagel spreads, known for a peanut butter-like texture, but that chocolate taste that they have alongside the hazelnuts. And Leighton, last year we discussed the company's petition to the FDA and trying to adjust serving size. It's a different subject, though, today. The issue at that time that we were talking about was the food segmentation classification, basically arguing whether it was a dessert topping or what the company wanted, more of a jam or custom category. The FDA has since reached out for public comment to try to get the consumer's belief as to what they feel Nutella is, but really haven't decided anything as of late. This has really created a debate among nutritionists, academics, and the general consumer, as I mentioned. The company has said it wants clarity before a new 2018 rollout of stricter nutrition facts, but they have yet to receive a formal classification or announcement from the FDA. So not only has the FDA not made a public comment, but they really haven't made any decisions regarding that new classification that the Nutella's parent company, Ferrero, wants. Ferrero is the manufacturer of Nutella, and they are based in Italy and are privately held. Ferrero has been producing the hazelnut spread since 1964. They first concocted it in Italy. Not to be confused with Ferraro Foods, a food manufacturer, a global one. Nutella first came to the U.S. in 1983. The company uses approximately one quarter of the world's hazelnuts, so a lot of demand there for their in-house business, which is really no problem because in 2014, they acquired the Alton Group, the world's largest hazelnut supplier. In addition, Ferrero produces other non-hazelnut products such as chocolates and other candies such as Tic Tacs. Nutella's U.S. sales are said to be in the neighborhood of around $250 million. Those are the 2015 numbers. But now, as you had mentioned, Trent, the company is looking for a market extension inside the United States. They have officially opened their first standalone Nutella Cafe. The cafe is going to be owned and operated by the parent company. And this is the parent company's extension, actually, that is based inside the U.S. Technically, it's the U.S. subsidiary of Ferrero named Ferrero USA Incorporated. They opened on Wednesday of this last week at 10 a.m. on May 31st on the 100 block of Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago, 189 North Michigan Avenue, if you are in the area to be exact. Technically, they do have smaller Nutella-oriented counters 
in other eateries and retail stores throughout the United States. They actually do have what they call a Nutella bar that already exists in the Chicago area, but nothing as large or as standalone per se as this new location. The location is neatly placed on the corner and it's already a busy corner, so they're hoping to bring in a lot of traffic. And if you go by this location, you can see that the front doors of the establishment are actually shaped like a jar of Nutella. So everything is Nutella themed as you would imagine this investment to be. The ceiling is apparently designed to look also like Knife Valley's in a Nutella jar, which is interesting. And the grand opening was celebrated with the first 400 people getting coupons and merchandise from the company that teased a meeting with the celebrity chef on that day as well. So now the natural question for us is, what is this restaurant serving? Well, of course, they'll be offering their wide selection of candies made by Ferrera and a number of Nutella tied-in items. Company managers wanted it to be more of a fan experience, almost more of a pilgrimage, if you will. But having a variety of dishes that will include Nutella will certainly help to appeal to all customers, not just Nutella fanatics coming from other parts of the United States or other parts of the world. And in fact, their head of marketing, Noah Sporn for North America, said, and I quote, We wanted to create a world of Nutella for our fans that could truly capture the essence of the brand, not just in the dishes that will be served, but the full experience from the moment you step in. And it seems as though looking at the pictures, they've managed to do that. Leighton talked about the unique ceiling, the unique door handles, but on the menu, they've got grilled baguettes, yogurts, fruit salads, paninis. A lot of these, of course, can incorporate Nutella. But to our surprise a little bit, some of their items have the option of no Nutella spread to come on them. Looking at the picture of the current in-house Nutella bar, the kind of the store in store that Leighton talked about in Chicago's Italy, other featured items include gift baskets, large jars of Nutella, but the prevailing force there seems to be bread and Nutella served to customers where they prepare it in plain sight behind the front counter, and it seems as though that is the main big ticket item in this particular instance. There were mentions of croissants also being served with Nutella as well. There were extremely long lines before the 10 a.m. opening. The Chicago Fox television station affiliate tweeted out some photos of these long lines forming as early as 6 or 7 a.m. Some of the patrons, in fact, were resting on the sidewalk outside waiting for this Nutella store to open, no doubt for those coupons and the swag, but also for the novelty of the Nutella restaurant. The 10 a.m. opening time was unique to opening day. Monday through Friday, they open at 7 a.m. from here on out, and they'll open on 8 a.m. on the weekends. They're open a little bit later on Friday and Saturday nights until 10 p.m. on those nights. And during the grand opening, the aforementioned Sporn, the head of Nutella Marketing in North America, he did mention that potentially they were looking at additional locations throughout the U.S., but none are yet in development. And that's another question I think we should tackle here, Leighton, is what is the runway for growth or possible runway for growth for Nutella in the U.S. to open some of these freestanding restaurants? It's an excellent question. I think that's one that really is dependent on the success of this single location. You have seen those other smaller in-store locations but overall, it's really going to be dependent on the cost-benefit analysis here because this location, you can see that it's a two-story location, Trent, and it's not a cheap 
area of real estate. We're talking about commercial real estate prices going up, especially in this popular downtown Chicago area. And so if they're able to bring in enough traffic and therefore contribution margin on the products that they're selling, both the bottles of Nutella and other candies and other assortments, but also the things that they are serving offhand, like the paninis and salads, it will be interesting to see if they can have an extension throughout the United States and really try to get outside the East Coast and Midwest areas that they're most prevalent in. And I think a lot of this has to do with the marketing campaigns from the company and how they're able to capitalize on those. They recently attempted and succeeded at a unique jar promotion in Italy. Their ad agency, Ogilvy and Mather, Italia, worked to use an algorithm to create 7 million unique label designs, in fact, with their products, with each one printed with a unique authentication code. The 7 million special jars sold out in one month. So if they were to able to tie this into some sort of in-store promotion to get people to come into the stores to buy their products or their new restaurant offerings. I think this would be a very good thing for them. And I am curious to see if they come into my market because I am a Nutella fan personally. It's a very good spread. And there's a couple things with the company that I am looking out for. One obviously being what we started the story with if the FDA decides to change their nutrition facts to adjust their serving size more like a jam or other spread. And then two, if they're able to actually capitalize on maybe combining their product with other like products, because typically you see Nutella selling by itself. You don't see a lot of complimentary or substitute goods beside it in the store when they sell those items. Well, Memorial Day just passed, so we'll be taking a quick glance at what restaurants try to lure customers with food and beverage deals. This year, Memorial Day occurred on May 29th, Monday it was. Although the holiday does have massive retail implications, it was not only boosted by the grocery sales for the prior week, but many retailers have been having abbreviated hours or are closed on the actual day of the holiday. But this does mean something for the actual restaurants and quick service restaurants inside the United States. Millions of Americans wanted to spend the weekend with their family and loved ones being outside barbecuing and things of that nature. However, many decided to go inside restaurants and take advantage of some deals and promotions that were going on based around the holiday. Larger celebrations surround bigger metropolitan areas. So in some areas, you might see a little bit less restaurant traffic. Areas such as Long Island, New York, where they label their holiday simply as MDW. It's huge. If you go throughout the streets, there's many celebrations happening. A lot of get-togethers with family and friends. A quick overview of some industry stats might make it a little bit more apparent as to how big the day is. Wallet Hub aggregated some interesting facts from analysts in previous surveys taken throughout different organizations in the United States, the Department of Veteran Affairs, Patio and Barbecue Association, and the Memorial Day Foundation, among others. They estimate that 75% of people barbecue on the day, which is behind the 87% for 4th of July, but it's actually ahead of all other relevant holidays, including Labor Day, where 74% of respondents say they celebrate outside 25% more cooking fires happen on Memorial Day, which is very interesting. A lot more people cooking inside, a lot more accidents are prone to happen. 818 hot dogs are estimated to be consumed every second in the United States. That's in aggregate with 7 billion sold in total for the day. 39.3% of Americans plan to travel for the holiday, 
which has actually increased since the 2016 figures. You see the relatively low gas prices have helped that out. As for the deals at either retail outlets or restaurants, 41.4% of people surveyed said they are likely to take advantage of these discounts or freebies. And this is interesting because overall, Trent, you see that the shift is really trending towards people wanting to stay inside and eat. But still for the holidays, it's interesting that people are taking advantage of at least the deals that the restaurants are having out there. And I think that is one way that restaurants can still drive traffic, even though people are really trying to take advantage of those lower grocery prices. Memorial Day for restaurants has always been kind of a love-hate relationship. It's usually universally positive for grocers as people are stocking up for those barbecues that Leighton mentioned. But if you're a full-service restaurant or a quick-service restaurant, you know that a lot of people are off work. A lot of professionals aren't working on that day. So people are usually more available to come in and eat. And the question is, do they? And in most cases, you see a tailing off of sales as the day progresses, as you get later into the evening hours when people are doing a little bit more grilling, or if they've gone to the lake or some external celebration, maybe they're getting back and they're either too full or too tired to actually go out to eat. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see some of these special deals. And then, of course, for positive PR, because after all, it is for Memorial Day. There is a certain thing in the United States that you are celebrating, which would be the memory of military veterans veterans as opposed to Labor Day, which is a day where you basically just celebrate the labor movement overall by taking a day off. So it's a little bit of a different holiday because certain businesses can get positive PR out of these deals. So let's take a look at some of the FSR restaurant deals. TGI Fridays has a buy one, get one on certain burgers in some of their markets, depending on the franchisee. Schlotzky's, which is more of a fast casual chain, offered an $8 meal deal combo with a medium sandwich on Memorial Day. Texas Roadhouse had early opening hours in some markets, anticipating people, of course, being off work, able to come in a little bit earlier. It's interesting because some restaurants had earlier closing hours on the other end of that. Denny's had a 20% off coupon for the days surrounding the holiday. You look at two very similar restaurant chains, Hooters and Twin Peaks, offering free entrees or free meals for veterans or those with a military ID. On Friday, this would have been the Friday prior to Memorial Day, Tivana had a mobile offer available for all of its customers between 3 and 7 p.m. that was good for a free 24-ounce tea within three of their chosen flavors. And then finally, local restaurants and cafes have probably too numerous to mention here throughout the country celebrated as well, either offering deals, family deals, and drink specials trying to get groups in or larger groups in to eat or consume food but these seemed more common in local offerings than did some of the one-off 20 percent off coupons and that type of thing or even the free entree with military id you didn't seem to see those as often at some of the local establishments as you did at some of the larger chains but still a few dip their toes into that pool as well. And, you know, Leighton, one of the interesting things about Memorial Day weekend is that this year National Hamburger Day coincided with Memorial Day weekend. It was Sunday, May 28th. Yeah, it was. And it, this is something that really struck our interest because not a lot of burger chains were able to take advantage of this movement via social media. And I think there's a couple of functions there to blame. One being Memorial Day was on the next following day, Monday, 
So a lot of their social media presence, a lot of their advertising was based around celebrating that holiday and giving homage to military veterans inside the United States. So I think that sort of detracted, but there were some operators that did seem to take advantage of it and offer some deals. You look at Smashburger, which is a company we'll talk about a little bit later in the story. They had some little quick things to say, but no real promotion surrounding the National Burger Day movement. Carl's Jr. did offer a free baby back rib burger with the purchase of another. And this was good actually through June 1st. So they tried to celebrate throughout a whole week. And we won't go ahead and list all the others. They were, again, hard to come by. It's very interesting. But it does seem as though some QSRs took, tried to take advantage of the day with the hashtag Nation Burger Day. However, not really taking advantage of it with any particular deals. And Trent, if you look at our social media account, we did talk about this at the Food Focus on Twitter. But you see that the bigger news outlets, the only one that really covered the story of National Burger Day was Fox News. And this was a media outlet that really covered all the participants. And there's a very good write-up if you go to their main website. But not a lot of fanfare regarding National Hamburger Day. And I'm curious to see if next year they will be able to take advantage of this. And overall, trend, a very interesting time in the food industry. You see all of these things surrounding food. That is, after all, the one thing everyone does have in common. So Gather your friends and family around for a big event and try to celebrate with food. It's always a big and surefire thing to do. To the listeners of the Food Focus podcast, if you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never tastes quite as good as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop, let me let you in on the secret. Coffee shops spend thousands of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars yearly, to make the perfect water for making coffee. And now for as little as just 10 cents per cup, you can actually duplicate that magic in the comfort of your own home. Third Wave Water has a patent-pending formula of minerals that when added to a gallon of distilled water makes for coffee brewing magic. Recently at the U.S. Brewers' Cup Championship, both the first and second place finishers brewed their coffee with Third Wave Water. Check out their website at thirdwavewater.com. Use the promo code FOCUS, F-O-C-U-S, for 10% off your first order. Trust me, you will not be sorry. Third Wave Water, an excellent product. They're not only advertisers on the show, but we're actually users of the product ourselves. at Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. Well, as we resume the Food Focus podcast, we mentioned my travels to Colorado during the last Retail Focus episode, and so we wrap up today's Food Focus with two Colorado-related stories that are actually of note to the rest of the U.S. And we begin with liquor laws. It's the six-month anniversary of Colorado's new liquor law taking effect, allowing expanded retail liquor licenses, and we figured we'd check after about six months to see how it's working out so far. A quick recap from last year when we discussed this same topic at the time of the original bill's passage. Colorado was one of five states in the U.S. prior to this bill passing that sold only 3.2% beer and no wine in grocery stores, convenience stores, and drug stores. Now Oklahoma and Kansas have also since passed laws that should eventually roll back the sales of 3.2 beer. Oklahoma voters, 66% of them in fact, voted to allow grocers to carry full-strength wine and beer beginning in October 2018. Kansas's bill oddly now allows 6% alcohol by volume, not alcohol by weight as the 3-2 law dictates 
to be sold in stores, but no wine. It was kind of a combination bill. Heavy lobbying efforts by liquor stores caused this kind of weird compromise in Kansas. But the Colorado law is also a compromise, and Leighton, it's really, really complex. It is, and it's a bit tricky to try to mull through the details here, but we'll do our best to try to make it clear as to what this liquor law means and this gradual phase-in. And the gradual phase-in is a great way to put this, as a lot of initiatives within this bill have yet to take place, and we'll discuss that in detail. As for the new liquor law, a single business can now own up to five drugstore liquor licenses as of January 1st of this year, which allows businesses to sell liquor, wine, and the full-strength beer. However, this is limited to stores with the drug and pharmacy part included. However, as it turns out, this does not include Target or Walmart, and we'll get to those big box stores in a little bit and the implications on those retailers. But retailers without drug stores, so if you're thinking more of a retailer that's strictly grocery, you're thinking about stores like Aldi and Trader Joe's, they have actually been allowed to only have two liquor licenses. And where Kroger may have five available locations in a particular state to sell wine, strong beer, or liquor, Aldi would just have the ability to sell two. So this is a little interesting because you would actually think it would be the other way around, Trent, and that those stores that do have the pharmacies included would maybe only be limited to two licenses, whereas the grocers that only sell the groceries would be able to have five liquor licenses. In either of the first two cases, the stores must first purchase all liquor licenses from other operators within a 1,500-foot radius. And this is interesting because if you think about it, a lot of grocery stores are in strip malls that are sort of nearby or maybe included within the strip mall a liquor store. And so they would have to be able to take either their liquor license or be able to be the only operator there to begin with. And then also the law extends out to other smaller parts of the state to where cities with fewer than 30,000 people, you would have to be within 3,000 feet of another operator. Additionally, the 3.2% beer mandate should disappear by 2019. So this really relates to the convenience stores and other typical grocers that are currently selling 3-2 beer. However, we're not saying that they already sell wine or liquor. We're talking about the retailers that are already selling the 3-2 beer may have in 2019 the ability to sell those full-strength beverages. But we talk about, Trent, the Walmarts and Targets of the world. We talk about these big box stores. And this was the hotly contested part of the bill to allow Walmart and Target to join the pharmacy portion because most of these locations obviously have pharmacies within them. In March, it was shot down the proposal to allow full strength sales into these stores. Kind of melodramatic quotes from this. Vicki Marble of Fort Collins called it a historic giveaway and destruction of the liquor industry that we've built in Colorado. So while in 2019 they should be able to sell strong beer, not as of yet for those big box retailers. And to cap off the details, I should say by 2037, anyone should be able to apply for a liquor license to be able to sell full strength beer, wine, or liquor. So again, more of a gradual mandate and more of a phase in, if you will, in the state of Colorado. So we've taken some time giving some background on this law. What about the impacts from the law? Well, everyone, including us on the Retail Focus podcast last year, we were focused on the impacts on grocers and other large retailers and the mom and pop liquor stores. But liquor superstores more or less went unmentioned by most media outlets. And even when we talked to Jake Laxon of the Colorado and 
he mentioned that you know, he felt like the liquor superstores would be okay, that they wouldn't be impacted necessarily one way or the other. But this is where it gets interesting, and this is where this story really takes off with a little bit more of a recent focus. I spoke with managers at Total Beverage, which has two Denver Metro locations, one in Westminster, Colorado, one in Thornton, Colorado. Both of these are northern suburbs of Denver. Now, Total Beverage, to give you a little bit of a background, these stores are about 25,000 square feet, if not more. They're sharing real estate with retailers like Best Buy. They're similar to a Total Wine, if you want to think of them in that way. But in the past, because of the Colorado liquor laws, the liquor laws as written at the time allowed everyone to hold only one license. So that means that Total Beverage having two locations, they had to have two separate owners of each location, two separate licenses, two separate management teams all together. They had separate images and separate deals for consumers. And when you're that large, when you're 25 to 30,000 square feet, you may not be printing off circulars, but you're certainly sending out blast emails and that type of thing with weekly deals. And sometimes they even had separate price points at these locations, which couldn't have been more than five miles apart. As of this year, though, as a result of the law, because one owner can own multiple liquor licenses, in fact, as of this year, two, they were able to kind of consolidate their ownership and their marketing efforts. So now these two stores are going forward as basically one operation in Total Beverage. They revamped their store logo, which, by the way, is very nice. It's a T and a B sitting on top of one another on the top of a wine barrel-like surface. So it's an excellent logo, very clean logo. They are able now to have similar pricing and specials between the locations and they're able to merge their mailing list. And actually, I subscribed to their mailing list in late 2016 just to see if there would be any changes because we knew this law was going to affect at the beginning of 2017, and they've been markedly changed indeed. And one of the first things that the email list began to say once 2017 rolled around is that the specials that they offered would be available at both locations, whereas in the past they would mention only one location or the other location. And perhaps more important for this organization, this total beverage company, their loyalty programs, which were once separate between the two stores, have now been merged. So they're able to use both data sets from both stores, allowing the organization to garner a benefit from an expanded customer base. They're able to look in more to what their customers desire, what their frequent customers desire, and get some of that additional customer frequency information. If you had maybe one customer visiting one location once a month and that same customer was visiting the other location twice a month, well, now they know that they have an average three visits for that customer during the duration of the month. They also know how much those certain customers buy at each particular location and if there are trends between the locations. And by unlocking that data, it's going to be helpful in the long term for Total Beverage. We mentioned how large the stores are, so anything that can benefit their bottom line is going to help out, especially with rents going up and lease rates going up. Theoretically, for other similar superstores with two locations or even more locations eventually can explore synergies, and this includes staffing. One thing that we oftentimes forget about is the ability for a chain grocer, a chain liquor store, any chain retailer or food service establishment if that food service establishment has company-run stores, you can actually shift staff from location to location as needed. So 
As an example, if one store, let's say the store in Thornton, has a special event, they can actually borrow staff now from the other store to assist because it's all under one umbrella. And this is a synergy that many businesses that sell liquor that have multiple liquor licenses now, anywhere between two or five, as Leighton explained earlier, can kind of unlock. Unfortunately, though, for Total Beverage, this is where the positivity kind of ends. Now that they've combined their two locations under one organizational roof, their expansion efforts going forward might be limited since they wouldn't be able to purchase another license until 2022 under this law. Now, if they were to add pharmacies in their locations, then they would be able to apply for a drugstore liquor license. But they're probably not going to do that. However, on a larger level, due to this law, a retailer like Total Wine, who we mentioned earlier as a comparison for Total Beverage, might find Colorado more suitable for their stores. Under the current laws, they have no locations in Colorado, but 10 in nearby Arizona. They have a ton in Texas, a ton in Missouri, where these restrictive laws don't really exist regarding liquor stores. So you might see some other superstores begin to tap this Colorado market. And for Total Wine, it's incumbent upon them to start fairly soon so they can get a foothold and get a little bit of a brand identity in Colorado before the native liquor superstores do so for themselves. And keep in mind, it's not just the Denver metro area. You have the Colorado Springs metro area, which is one of the fastest growing in the country. You have the Pueblo metro area as well as Grand Junction out in western Colorado. So there's a lot of area that you can tap into if you're a retailer like Total Wine. You've got two possible locations that you can put now in Colorado, and it's up to them to try and take advantage of that going forward. Overall, though, on the other side of impacts here, authorities say there has not yet been a spike in applications for licensure throughout the state. So despite someone like Total Beverage maybe consolidating ownership or consolidating at least the outer look of ownership, there haven't been a spike in applications above and beyond the typical applications that they've seen to this point. So it hasn't caused a rush of people going for liquor licenses as some of the mom and pop stores feared would happen under this compromise bill. So, so far, that fear has been put to bed at least six months in. Our last story and our second story with a Colorado tie-in with National Burger Day happening on May 28th. It's only right that we check back in on fast-growing Colorado-based burger chain Smash Burger. With Shake Shack getting all the press here in recent months, it's easy to forget how Smash Burger actually ranks right behind Five Guys in terms of new fast-casual burger chains in terms of growth. Currently, they have around 375 locations inside the United States, and with those locations, you see a mix of both franchise and corporate ownership. They have a presence in 37 states with growth plans still in the works, trying to branch out to both other states and other markets. It was founded by a group including Tom Ryan, Rick Shaden, and a private equity firm in 2007, Consumer Capital Partners. And there's a tie-in there. As with Consumer Capital Partners, Shaden is actually the owner of that private equity firm. And the private equity firm was also the former owner of Quiznos, which is very interesting. Jollibee Foods out of the Philippines took a 40% stake in Smashburger in 2015. So you see some large foreign investment there. And the name Smashburger actually comes from how they form their patties. Rather than preforming their patties, like let's say frozen meat, for example, they place balls of hamburger meat on the grills and then smash them with a spatula. And this is supposedly trying to help the flavor there, supposedly searing in the juices. So 
overall a very interesting company and one that you and I don't really talk about a lot, Trent. But within this story, we do have three major stories, so sort of three stories within a story here with Smashburger. And first, we'll get started off with the fact that they are rolling out an all-natural turkey burger option that is system-wide. So all of the restaurants are going to be carrying this turkey patty. And it's interesting, Trent, because if you look at their press release, it shows that they are very excited about this release. They say this is actually the first time they had a menu innovation, including turkey. And so this is going to be alongside some of their other burger options. And so nothing's really going to be put off to the side. They're just going to be adding this to their traditional menu. And up until now, their burger options included the regular smash, the big smash, grilled chicken, crispy chicken, and the black bean burger. So all of these are called their different protein options, which of course is something we try to refer to other options in the food industry. In a press release, their CEO, Tom Ryan, said, we've given our customers a new way to burger, and they are going to flip when they see the taste that we've created. And to be honest, Trent, you and I were laughing about this because this is really salesy. However, this is an interesting dynamic for a company trying to come into a space that Shake Shack is in, trying to promote the healthiness of their food. And I think turkey is a great way to do it. Overall, you see a lot of challenges in other categories when you're trying to include turkey as a protein. A lot of people, a lot of consumers that consume turkey say that it's bland in flavor. It doesn't have a lot of spice to it. But Smashburger seems to be attempting to combat this in their own marketing efforts. Right now on the front page of their website, they are marketing the turkey burger with their spicy jalapeno Baja treatment, which includes both guacamole, jalapenos, and the pepper jack cheese. They're pinned tweet currently on their Twitter page is of the turkey rollout. So they are big and bullish on this rollout. And it seems to me this extension seems to be working as I've personally seen a lot of positive feedback from this movement. At the same time, there's been a lot of feedback. They've garnered only seven retweets and 11 likes when they put this out on Twitter in May, and that is from their pinned tweet. So it could be that they need a little more social media engagement. Leighton, you were talking about social media as it pertained to National Burger Day earlier this week. The second storyline that we're following regarding Smashburger is, is kind of weirdness at their leadership positions. Their C-suite has been in constant flux over the last two years as a former Smashburger CEO goes on board this month at Pyology. Pyology is very similar to other fast casual pizza places. It's a made-to-order pizza joint. Think Mod Pizza or Pie 5 or really any one of those companies. There seems to be hundreds at this point all trying to be that quote-unquote Chipotle of pizza. Pyology in early May announced the hiring of former Smashburger president and CEO Michael J. Nolan as their own president from their release. They mentioned how Nolan brings more than 25 years of experience in the restaurant industry. And ordinarily, we wouldn't be talking about it on the show, except for the fact that Nolan was kind of a recent storyline at Smashburger because he was hired in April of 2016. Not that long ago, in fact, just over a year ago, and he actually departed the company in December. He was there less than nine months by the time he departed the company. And this is where it kind of gets weird. Tom Ryan, the co-founder that we mentioned earlier from the press release they put out regarding the turkey burger, was actually appointed as Nolan's replacement. Before that, Ryan had been Smashburger's chief brand officer while Nolan was CEO. They mentioned the need to retain Ryan 
as the chief brand officer because through expansion they wanted to try and retain the strength in the Smashburger brand. But then you look back before Nolan. Nolan's predecessor, Scott Crane, was there for three years, but he resigned in April 2016. And when he resigned, there was no explanation given to employees or even to franchisees other than saying the company needed a new direction. So that's what Smashburger said. But it's funny because Nolan, in his first press release, said that Smashburger was headed in a great direction and he wasn't there to shake things up. So you had Smashburger saying that they needed a new direction and you had Nolan coming in to take the CEO position saying that they were already headed in a great direction. They didn't need any changes. If you look back before Crane even, David Prokupek was their CEO. He left without explanation and, in fact, later sued Smashburger, claiming that they had written him out of millions in stock. And again, that was Prokupek's claim. But you have a regular rotation here in the CEO position, eventually reverting back to one of the co-founders of the chain at the top in Tom Ryan, who is their current CEO. Now, why is this the case? Well, as you look at some of the undercurrents beneath Smashburger, there's some speculation that exists that says that Jollibee may be pressuring the C-suite at Smashburger, although their growth, as far as we can see, continues to be robust in terms of adding store locations. Their same store sales have rumored to be not necessarily as robust. And in fact, there's some people that want growth to be even greater for Smashburger, which has grown from just one restaurant in 2007 to now 375 in 2017, far greater than the growth rate of someone like Shake Shack, who commands a lot of attention from national media. And this is where other speculation comes in. Others believe that the growth and sale of franchises isn't where Shaden wants it. And if we look back to last year, Smashburger did hire former Rave Restaurant executive Mark Ramage as their director of franchise development last September. So they're trying to underscore the fact that they need new franchisees on board. They need to continue to sell these franchises to build out the chain. It's almost like when you look at Shaden's messages that he sends out, Almost like there's an arms race going on between Smashburger, Five Guys, In and Out, and Shake Shack, among several other operators in this particular space. But what I think is interesting is they bring Ramage in from Rave Restaurant Group, and we see now that, of course, Rave, as we talked about a few months ago, they're being sued by a franchisee for misleading information provided to franchisees regarding the profit potential or revenue potential of some of their franchises. So it makes one kind of maybe second-guess this move by Smashburger. We don't know what relation Ramage had, if any, to that ordeal, but we see how Rave is declining in same-store sales by double digits per year, and they're still bringing on new franchisees, so at least they're good at selling franchises if they're not good at selling pizza at Rave Restaurant Group. Anyhow, the point is that Smashburger has seen a lot of upheaval in their front office, and meanwhile over at Pyology, who brought in Nolan, the former CEO who left just a few months ago, Carl Chang, the former CEO of Pyology, will actually step back so that Nolan can step in as the CEO. Chang will remain chairman of the board. People said that he wanted to kind of step back and run it a little bit more from afar, wanted to take a more hands-off approach, and Nolan is now overseeing the next phase of growth for Pyology. Speaking of Pyology, they're soon releasing a thick crust option, and we'll cover this on Food Focus when it's released. Leighton, what about that third storyline? It seems like it's a little bit more generalized, not necessarily specific to Smashburger, but still entails them. 
It definitely includes them as a Wall Street Journal article cites the QSR and fast casual lunch burger joint traffic to have declined about 5% in the last year. The research comes via the NPD group and is the largest year-over-year drop in lunch traffic for burger chains that the company has ever recorded. At the time, NPD Group found that the average lunch at a burger joint, including burgers, fries, and drinks, had increased 22% over the past few years. So you're going into a QSR or a a fast-casual burger joint, and you're seeing that your bill is up over 22% over the past few years. That is an alarming rate. The Wall Street Journal seems to believe that the problem here is, in fact, the ever-rising price at the fast-casual chain's citing a quote from a Wendy's executive that the $13 burger meals are unsustainable. And Trent, recently I went to a local Five Guys. I had two regular burgers, which are the double patty burgers and a fry. The total came up to about $15.50. So a very high margin there for the company. And to start with, any of Smashburger's special burgers around $6.69 at the nearest Smashburger to where we live. Regular fries, you can add another $2.09 and a drink for another $1.99. Milkshake started around the $4 price point. And by the time you're finished, the price may be around the price I just quoted for my recent Five Guys meal, around $11 to $15 for a meal. And that's just the base cost. So if you're with another family member or if you decide to get something else like a, a bigger milkshake or a more specialty milkshake, the price is going to be even higher than that. And their price point is actually slightly higher overall than their biggest competitors in Five Guys and In-N-Out Burger, but a slightly lower than Shake Shack or so it appears. The Wall Street Journal also states that the number of quick service restaurants has quadrupled as they actually mean the fast casual sector as the number they give is around 2,700 restaurants here in the United States. And there are obviously more QSR burger places than that if you include all of the concepts. So the big question is, why is the consumer sentiment towards the burger lunch declining? And it could be a number of issues, Trent, as we delve in here. You see that the wage inflation is a function of keeping those prices relatively high, even though we have seen food deflation overall. And that food deflation has actually helped the grocery segment. Even though you're seeing a lot of stagnation in grocery store revenues, people have been deciding to go in and purchase the meals there for lunch or dinner, which could then take away from those QSR sales in the fast casual segments as well. People could be more health and environmentally conscious. Annual meat consumption per capita is said to be declining 15% in the last 10 years. And Trent, we had spoken about a Tyson earnings call over the last couple months and how you see several protein sectors either stay stagnant or declining, which really puts pricing pressure on several categories such as beef and turkey. 22.8 million Americans are now what they call flexitarian. 7.3 million are actually vegetarian. Whole Foods had mentioned this is a movement in 2017, flexitarian that is. And Whole Foods is really big on trying to identify those food trends, large overarching trends. And this is something that really has been prevailing. A lot of people eating a lot less meat inside the United States. Running and biking are obviously fast-growing participation sports in the United States. And you're seeing CrossFit, too, really taking off, still keeping with the momentum, even though it's about a decade old. There's about 10,000 CrossFit gyms inside the United States now. The average time an employee gets for lunch is also declining. 
The sheer number of employees taking consistent breaks for lunch is going down. A lot of people eating inside their workplace, according to HR consulting firm Right Management. And in 2014, a survey by Office Team found that 48% of workers said their lunch break lasts 30 minutes or less. And personally, Trent, I only get a 30-minute lunch break. I know a lot of our listeners only do. And so by the time you factor in driving, especially if you're in a very large metropolitan area, it could take upwards of 45 minutes, even if you call ahead. So the conclusion here is that fast casual burger chains will have to come up with some other draw in order to bring in consumers. We always talk about marketing gimmicks, trying to take advantage of those promotional deals surrounding, let's say, a National Burger Day campaign on social media. This ties into the first story about turkey burgers. Again, this will be appealing to the more health-conscious consumers and hopefully will pay dividends for the company long-term. But this really is a story about differentiation because this story really is all-encompassing in that you're looking at all aspects of both competition and trying to identify your core consumer. And a lot of your core consumer is dwindling down as the consumer is being more and more health-conscious and they still are trying to take advantage of those falling grocery prices inside your local supermarkets. Those health-conscious consumers seem to be being ignored by some of the other fast-casual burger places. We talk about In-N-Out and Five Guys. A lot of their meals calorically dense. They don't have a lot of lean protein options. In-N-Out, very few options overall. So this is a differentiation front for Smashburger, and they're able to roll this out at a much larger network of stores than Shake Shack would be able to roll out a similar protein. We've reached the conclusion of the Food Focus podcast, which means one thing. It's time for the segment called What We Ate, where each Leighton and I talk about one thing that we ate that's new or up and coming in the world of food. And we begin with Leighton. I'll keep mine short, but it actually has to do with what I drank over the weekend. I went to a local Target and I got the Bolt House Farms Protein Plus Coffee Drink. And so this is a coffee drink that's infused with both coffee, obviously caffeine, and protein. As you see two different protein sources coming from both protein concentrate and soy protein isolate. And Trent, this was an interesting drink because this is something I just grabbed. I wanted something that was protein infused. And you see, and this was also based off a story that we had covered a couple months ago on the Food Focus podcast, a lot of protein infused drinks that are really taking over shelf space. And I was surprised to see three different SKUs from Bolt House Farms alone taking over the shelf in the produce area at my local Target. But overall, you see that Bolt House Farms does pride itself on being very health conscious. You see that the drinks have no artificial flavors, no high fructose corn syrup, no preservatives, and they are, of course, gluten free, which is easy to come by in a beverage. But overall, Trent, this drink was very tasty, but in my opinion, it had a bit too much sugar. So I got the 32 ounce bottle. It was around a $7 price point. It was the larger bottle. They come in two sizes, a 15.2 ounce and then the 32 ounce, which is what I got. But you're looking at the sugar content and for a 32 ounce bottle, a conventional bottle of this Bolt House Farms drink, you're looking at 16 grams of protein, 24 grams of sugar. And so if you multiply that out, the serving size calls for four servings per bottle four times 24, you're taking in almost 100 grams of sugar, which is what I did. And I kind of felt a crash thereafter. So regardless of it being a so-called healthy drink because of the no artificial preservatives, no high fructose corn syrup, you still see that the nutrition facts 
aren't necessarily the best if you're going to be drinking a whole bottle in one sitting. However, if you can limit yourself to about eight fluid ounces, you would only be taking in a quarter of what I took in. If you're looking at the overall fat content, you see that the fat's relatively low as it should be. 2.5 grams of fat, only 1.5 grams of saturated fat. Again, that's with an eight fluid ounce bottle. And you're seeing 190 calories, which again is also fairly low. And with the coffee aspect, let's not forget that the first ingredient is coffee, water, and coffee extract, obviously with the low-fat milk. But you're seeing a slight boost of energy, something that really wasn't too strong for me. The real complaint I have is the crash from the sugar, a lot of sugar content here. However, if you're looking at the initial taste, this is something that I recommend to our listeners. Let's keep in mind, too, that Bolthouse Farms, owned by Campbell's now, after a few years ago, Campbell's able to buy them out. I wanted to focus once again on Colorado because of my recent trip out there, and I ate at a Colorado restaurant chain that I view as an up-and-coming restaurant chain. It's called Urban Egg, a daytime eatery. Now, Urban Egg, or the company that owns Urban Egg, which is Rocky Mountain Restaurant Group, actually has a fairly large group of restaurants. They've got Over Easy as well, which is another daytime eatery in the same vein as Urban Egg. They've got Centera Grill, and they also have Salsa Brava. And I like the fact that they're able to unlock a lot of their square footage for these different concepts. For example, the Urban Egg at which I ate becomes a Salsa Brava by night. So you've got a little bit of the daytime eatery there, and then at night, you're able to fill that space rather than letting it sit empty with an entirely different restaurant. It's a unique concept. Urban Egg was recently named number 10 on Urban Spoon's list of 101 great breakfasts in the United States. So I thought, hey, I need to check it out. They have soon to be four locations for Urban Egg. They have three locations for Over Easy. And they have another handful of locations for their other restaurant concepts. So about 10 locations in total. And there were a lot of decisions to be made on the menu. But what I gravitated towards and what the waitstaff talked me into was the Rocky Mountain Corned Beef Hash. It was gluten-free. It's got two eggs, your style. I got the eggs actually poached, slow-roasted corned beef, sautéed peppers, jalapeno bacon chutney, and toast. And the combination of the flavors, the saltiness and smokiness of the beef, uh, of course, the eggs there, but then the sautéed peppers got a little sweetness from that, and then the jalapeno bacon chutney, you had the smokiness from the bacon, the sweetness from the chutney, the spiciness from the jalapeno. It basically touched every single sensation there from spicy to sweet to salty and then the savory there as well it was excellent i've got to tell you it was an excellent meal i actually went back later and got their breakfast quinoa which is cooked with coconut milk cinnamon fresh strawberries fresh blueberry walnuts and colorado honey it too was excellent the reason i wanted to eat there in part was because i feel like this is a restaurant chain that could indeed break out or begin to franchise on a wider basis. Now, the problem for them will be overcoming some of the regionality of their food. Now, it's a great thing for their current eateries. They use Colorado or local ingredients as much as possible. So if they do franchise out or expand to other states, they'll have to tweak and adjust their menu to be able to accommodate that. Oftentimes, we talk about scalability. 
mobility and the ability to make things translate on a much larger scale. If urban egg is to expand beyond just Colorado or the Colorado region, they'll have to find a way to maybe scale up their restaurant concept. But as it is, even with about their 10 locations across their four different restaurant concepts, an excellent meal out there in Colorado. And I would be looking for this chain on your radar here over the next five to 10 years. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast, brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. For Leighton, I'm Trent. We'll be back tomorrow with Retail Focus. Have a happy donut day, everybody, and we'll see you back here next week in this same spot. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 